This is Sound and Vision from KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Hazel Scott was a black pianist who was classically trained at Juilliard at the age of eight and started making a name for herself as a performer in New York in the 1930s while she was still in high school. She went on to play big concert halls and notable nightclubs. As stated in a biography about her by actor and author Karen Chilton, she was the first black woman to host her own television show and one of the first to refuse to perform before segregated audiences. She negotiated lucrative contracts with Hollywood studios, becoming one of the highest paid performers of her era. I'm now joined by Karen Chilton, who's here to talk about Hazel Scott's life and career. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. And so to start off, Hazel Scott was born in Trinidad and moved to New York as a child with her mother. And her mother was also a serious musician who performed with notable musicians and would often host so many musicians at the family home in New York, including Billie Holiday, among others. Talk about Alma Scott's career and impact on Hazel. I will quote uh, Hazel herself, who said that the biggest influence on her life was her mother. Alma Longscott was a concert pianist, and she started her career in Port of Spain, Trinidad, uh, in the early 1900s. Her dream was to be a concert pianist. And when she concertized for the first time, her wrists gave out. So she had trained all of these years for this moment, and then she realized that her physical capabilities, that her wrists could not sustain a full performance. And so she turned all of her attention to her young daughter, who was a prodigy, and she told her very simply in her very pragmatic way that quote that that many people know that says those who can do and those who can't teach. So she became Hazel's first piano teacher and gave up her career as a pianist. Later, when they moved to Harlem in the 1920s, she took up saxophone and she was self-taught and ended up performing with a lot of the all-woman orchestras that were popular during that time. Amazing. Yeah. And she became her own band leader and just seems like such a force on Hazel. It's super fascinating to hear about Hazel's mother. And um, moving forward, you know, the place that really put Hazel on the map was a New York nightclub called Cafe Society. You know, Billie Holiday performed Strange Fruit there on opening night and later on had asked that Hazel take her performance slot when Billie Holiday went out of town. And Hazel ended up becoming a headliner at a Cafe Society with regular performance slots by the time she was 19. And Cafe Society just seems like such an amazing place. I mean, so many artists, big name artists at the time went there to just spend time. And even in the late 30s, there was no segregation in the venue and everyone seemed to get along. Tell me more about the vibe of Cafe Society and if you felt it was a unique space at the time. It was absolutely a unique space. It's um, a nightclub that has a very interesting history of its own. Cafe Society opened in 1938 with Billie Holiday as its headliner. A year later, when Hazel performed there, she was still just 19 years old, but she was coming off of a huge success on Broadway. She had appeared in a couple of Broadway shows to very favorable notices. So she was a known quantity around New York City. Billie Holiday was a family friend, and she decided, you know, Hazel needs a better venue. 
and she needs a venue that can really put her name on the map. Cafe Society at that time, when you think of New York City and it being such a diverse place, a place with all of these different cultures living in this city, but in the 30s, it was, you know, segregation was still very prominent in the North. Even in clubs in Harlem, black folks could perform there, but they couldn't walk through the front door and be guests there. So Cafe Society opening in the village, which was sort of a hippie, sort of bohemian neighborhood at the time, it was considered radical um, when Barney Josephson and his brother uh, decided to open this club that welcomed black and white patrons, where black and white patrons were able to attend the performances, and the performances themselves were made up of a cast of integrated performers. So you had a Jewish guy who was the MC. you'd have Hazel performing, you had Josh White, a black guitarist, he was performing, then you may have a folk singer, you may have a, another comedian, all of these different races, it was multicultural, it was ahead of its time for 1938 New York City. And Hazel was right there at the beginning of that. So she was part of a new wave of radical performers who decided, we want to do this another way, and we're going to lead the pack on this. So Hazel Scott became known for, quote, swinging the classics or jazzing the classics. Tell me more about her musical background and and how that kind of style came to be for her. Well, one of the things I think we have to realize about Hazel herself is that she was a very vivacious personality. She was a child prodigy. She was um, a woman who Uh, had a working knowledge of seven different languages. She was a person who had a thirst for knowledge. So she could easily become bored. And that was something that her mother had to work with her on when she became her teacher. And she's the one that marched her into Juilliard and said, you need classical training. You need a structured uh, environment where you can train because this precocious little girl, you know, who was, was so smart and so ahead of her time, as a musician, she was hard to tame. And so she had a lot of musical interest. She loved the swing music that she would hear on the radio. She loved artists like Mary Lou Williams and Duke Ellington and Fletcher Henderson. You know, she's a young girl coming up in Harlem where this music was all around her. So she appreciated the classics. And she always said, she said, my mother is a purist. She likes her classics straight and her jazz even straighter. Well, she said, I'm not disciplined enough for that. And so jazzing the classics, where she would take compositions by Bach and Rachmaninoff and Liszt, and then she would start off playing them straight. And then next thing you know, she'd start syncopating, adding bass notes, and she'd turn the whole composition into something really swinging. Well, that's an indication of, I think, who Hazel was as a personality and as a performer. It was her pure joy that she got out of it and she loved shocking the audience she loved the idea that she would start playing these classical pieces very serious and very straight and then next thing you know she's bouncing on the seat of the of the piano bench and you realize in watching those performances nobody is having more fun than her 
And it sounds like Hazel was just, yeah, such a ham on stage, like loved performing, was was such a joy to watch on stage. But also, you know, throughout her career, she does sing occasionally, and she has a wonderful voice, but I feel like she's not remembered as a singer. Love will find a way skies now are gray. And I'm curious why you think she didn't lean more into singing or, you know, wasn't known for being a singer. One of the issues that a lot of women instrumentalists were up against at that particular time during the jazz age and even beyond, is that you weren't supposed to be the lady that swings with the band. You're supposed to be the lady that sings with the band. Mm. And so that was always the expectation. Now, Hazel, being very much her own woman and just very demonstrative, very, she just went to the beat of her own drum. She never sang because she felt she had to. She said, I sing because I felt like it. So when she decided to sing, it was because a certain song spoke to her. She loved it. She was able. She had a beautiful alto voice. And that's why she sang. But she never felt the pressure to sing. You know, even in some of the Hollywood uh, MGM musicals that she appeared in, she sang because she wanted to. And then and she was beautiful. I mean, she had she was the whole package. She was just as great a singer as she was a pianist. She was a great actress. She was a great beauty. You know, so she was a favorite pinup from the guys overseas fighting in the military. You know, she was up there with Dorothy Dandridge with you know, the other pinup girls, because she was just that gorgeous and sexy and vivacious and all of those things. So I think it speaks to her confidence that she decided when she wanted to sing and when she didn't. But this was very much an issue for a lot of women in jazz. Two women that come to mind are Carmen McRae and Sarah Vaughan. Both of them were very talented pianists. But they knew at that time, if they were going to make it in jazz, they'd have to sing. Mm. Hazel was just someone who decided, no, I'm a musician first. I'll sing when I want to. Amazing. <laughs> oh, what, a, what an inspiration. Told all my friends and relations, be a wedding by and by. Gave up the news, and what did you give me? Who gave me the go by? Yes, you gave me the go by, left me all alone. Hazel was very serious about her contracts when she performed outside of cafe society. She refused to perform to segregated audiences. And you write in your biography on her that her contracts called for immediate forfeiture if the audience was separated by race when she arrived. She would be paid, but there would be no show. I mean, how common were segregated audiences at the time that Hazel was performing? And was it rare for performers to have this type of clause in their contracts? I think it it was rare and it was it was a daunting stance to take for all black performers when you consider this was the Jim Crow era. So this was, you know, whites only, blacks only throughout the South and in the North, even though those signs may not have been in the window, the sentiment was still there. So taking a stand as she did It could have cost her in terms of her reputation, in terms of her ability to get booked. You know, club owners may not have wanted to be bothered. 
And I can't, I'm not going to go as far as to say that there weren't other black performers who took the same stance. I think there were many who took that stance. Um, it was just one of those things that I think you hear a lot of black performers, people like Harry Belafonte or Paul Robeson, you would hear uh, or read about them in interviews saying, you know, when I went to Texas or when I went to Alabama or when I played in St. Louis or whatever the town was, I told them X, Y, and Z, or I refused. So it may not have been something that necessarily made the news, but Hazel decided in order for this to be a consistent stance that I take, this needs to be made plain in every last one of my contracts. And she did end up forfeiting several contracts, um, several performances throughout her career. It was something she was not going to budge on. So it wasn't, it wasn't negotiable. It was literally in print. If I get there and black folks are sitting in the balcony and all the white folks are, you know, have the good seats, I'm leaving and you'll hand me my check on my way out. (laughs) And and then in the early 1940s, Hazel went on to Hollywood and appeared in five films over the course of a year and a half. And you write, you know, how black performers at the time were usually relegated to screen roles as maids or servants. But as you write in your biography on Hazel Scott, her film contracts were to include a clause that gave her final approval of her musical numbers. If it provided a wardrobe that was less than flattering, she would wear her own clothes, which, by the way, always involved diamonds, jewels, and elaborate <laughs> gowns. Right. And and she also insisted that no matter who was in that cast, no matter the storyline, that she would not play a character. Her credit would read Hazel Scott as herself. And I was just so impressed to read that she was able to pull all this off. And she also really advocated for other Black actors as well. Can you talk about the three-day strike she staged on the set of the, the the heat's on. She. This was a film uh, that starred Mae West, and it was for Columbia Pictures. And I think that to put some context around the time period, you're talking about the early '40s. World War II is going on overseas. Yet Hazel is one of the highest-paid entertainers in the country at this time. Wow. She was in such demand. And when Barney Josephson, who had become her manager and negotiated her contracts, she told him from the gate, I will not play a maid. I will not play a subservient character. And part of this was prefaced by the treatment that she had seen her friend and mentor, Billie Holiday, go through Mm. in Hollywood. Billie Holiday, she said, if they made the great Billie Holiday play a maid, what are they going to do to me? And also, because she was getting paid so much money working the club circuit and being the headliner at Cafe Society, she didn't think she needed Hollywood. Hmm. She was like, I don't need them. They need me. (laughs) So when she went there, and and consider, too, Hollywood at this time had what they called studio players. So you were guaranteed X amount of films per year, and you had X amount of money that you could count on making. Well, to give you a comparison, at the time, Lena Horne was a contract player for MGM, I believe, and she was making a guaranteed $800 a week, something like that. And when Hazel went, her contract was for $4,000 a week. Mm. And I say it all the time. I'm like, I'm in SAG after. There are actors now who don't make $4,000 a week <laughs> on, a, on a gig. So $4,000 a week in 1941, 1942, that was a lot of money. So she demanded not only 
all of those stipulations that you outlined in her contracts, she was bringing in the highest pay. So when she got there, she did have a sense of responsibility, meaning I have to, I've been given this great platform, so I have to use it for good. I have to use it to benefit my people. And she did that in every performance that she gave. And nobody was a greater poster child for black excellence than her. So she said, I'm going to always be at my best. I'm going to always perform my best. And I'm going to always look my best. So when she stages the strike on the set of Harry Cohn, who was known as King Kong in, in Hollywood, or King Cohn, I think they called him, because he had such a reputation for being you know, just a really difficult uh, producer at at Columbia. She stages this three-day strike because in the middle of this performance where she's dressed, you know, in a fetching army uniform as a, a member of the WAC. So she has on this cute little hat and this khaki little outfit and skirt. And she does this big musical number, the Quezon number. And wherever we go, you will always know that those caissons are rolling along. Keep them rolling, those caissons are rolling along. Attention! And there's a group of men that come onto the stage, and they're in their army uh, uniforms. She's in her uniform. And the scene was supposed to be where the wives are saying goodbye to their husbands as they go off to war. When they march out on the stage, they all have on dirty aprons. And Hazel stopped performing in the middle of the scene. And she said, why are these women wearing soiled Hoover aprons? And the director was out sick that day. And so the choreographer, David Lachine, he steps in and goes, well, because they've been working in their kitchens and they're, they're greasy and dirty from, you know, frying chicken or whatever. And she said, there's absolutely no woman in the world that would see her sweetheart off to war wearing a dirty Hoover apron. (laughs) Until these aprons are removed, we will not perform this scene. So she goes to the women. They all walk off together. I mean, they're following her lead because she's one of the celebrities on this film. They follow her. She tells all the women backstage, look, we're going to stage this strike for three days. When you come back here on the third day, I want you completely tricked out. Wear your best dress, get your makeup done, get your hair done, and look your absolute best. In the meantime, she goes and has it out with Harry Cohn, and he can't believe that This black woman, whom he's hired, has stopped production on his film. And then he tells her, you know, this sounds like a cliche, but it actually did happen, where he tells her, you'll never work again in this town. And she said, so be it. She was not crazy about Hollywood. And Hazel had a very short, I won't say a short temper, but she had very little tolerance for injustice. And she just was not willing to put up with it. And she didn't mind if her career took a hit because of it. She just thought, I can't sit here and grin and perform smiling and do my best and do this number. And these black women are standing behind me in dirty aprons. She ended up winning the battle, but not the war. So after doing that film, the women did get to come back, wear their pretty dresses. So when you see the heat's on now and all those black women are back there looking smashing, it's because of Hazel Scott. Attention! Right face! Column left! March! 
but she didn't ever work in Hollywood again. Uh, and what he his quote was, you'll never work in Hollywood again until the day I die. Years and years and years and years later, she ended up doing a few soap operas and all that. But we're talking way later. After like, his death, he literally after died. After <laughs> he died. He died. Yep. I'm speaking with Karen Chilton, author of a biography on Hazel Scott titled Hazel Scott, The Pioneering Journey of a Jazz Pianist from Cafe Society to Hollywood to the House Un-American Activities Committee. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll hear about the events that happened after Hazel's time in Hollywood and how some of those events hurt her career and might be the reason why Hazel Scott is in a household name decades later. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox, speaking with Karen Chilton, who wrote a biography on pianist Hazel Scott. Well, we just heard about her life as a child prodigy, making a name for herself in New York as well as in Hollywood. And after Hazel Scott's strike in Hollywood, she returned to New York, where she went on to marry Adam Powell, who was a pastor and became a congressman representing Harlem. But because of his relationship with the church, he asked Hazel not to play in nightclubs any longer. What kind of impact do you think that made on Hazel's career? It was one of the major uh, turning points in her career in that she became marginalized in a sense because, well, she was furious, but she was also young. I mean, let's put in perspective all of these stories that we're telling. She's in her 20s. Yeah, amazing. While all of this is going on. She meets Adam Powell when she was, I believe, 24, and he was 36. So he was a lot older than her. He was running for office. He was pastor of the very prominent black church, the Abyssinian Baptist Church, which was and still is one of the prominent black Baptist churches in the nation. So he was known nationwide, as was his father, who was uh, the first minister of that church and who established that church in Harlem. Well, you know, when he comes to her with this, this idea that, well, the congregation doesn't like the first lady of the church to perform where cigarettes and alcohol are sold. And she said, you met me in a club with yeah. cigarettes and alcohol, and you had your fair share of both. So, you know, she just thought it was the height of hypocrisy, but being a young bride and wanting the marriage to work, she decided to acquiesce. But the deal was, if I do this from here on out, the church stays out of my business and I'll stay out of theirs. So it wasn't a great relationship between her and a lot of the folks who were, you know, the longtime members of the church, but they stayed out of each other's way. But what she had to do in terms of her career is she had to pivot and go back to what she had been doing previously. And that was playing classical music again, getting on the concert circuit, having to book national tours all over the country, which is a lot harder work than being a headliner at a club where you know every night there's going to be a crowd that's come just to see you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's the, the gig that many jazz musicians would dream of. I've got a room that's my own. So she gave that up to go back out on the road and worked that much harder trying to win over crowds in all of these different cities. I mean, she performed nationally and internationally, which made her acclaim worldwide. So, I mean, that was one of the benefits of it. But it was extremely hard work. And then when you consider 
that Adam Powell had just won a seat in Congress and became the first black congressman representing the East Coast. I mean, representing Harlem, but he was the first black congressman from the East Coast. So both of them had these huge careers that pulled them away from New York, which was their base, pulled them away from each other. She's on the road. He's in D.C., And the only time that they would find a lot of time together is when they would package sort of these trips where she would perform internationally. You know, she was in London, she was in Paris, she was in Berlin, she was all over Europe. And that's when he would go and visit the army bases overseas, because one of his big political points was to desegregate the armed forces in America. That was something that he was bringing to the floor of the house whenever he got a chance. So he would go in person and visit the black servicemen overseas and find out about their treatment. So they worked in tandem. They figured out a way to make this work. But it was tough. That was a hard decision for her. And I think ultimately, that was sort of the beginning of her chipping away at the career that she had worked so hard to establish. And again, you know, along this way, while they're traveling all over, they they have a child along the way. And if you look back just on Adam Powell's legacy, um, you write later in the book that because of his legislative efforts, um, it drove the desegregation of public schools and the United States military. He also helped introduce a minimum wage and set standard for work hours. I mean, he also had a really big career. But yeah, it seemed to also have an impact on Hazel Scott's life. And moving forward in, in 1950... Hazel Scott was given her own 15-minute television show that would air on a local New York station featuring her on piano. But that came to an end shortly after because Hazel Scott was rumored to have ties to the Communist Party, and she ended up having to speak before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Talk about that accusation and how that impacted her career. Well, I think that was, in many ways, the death blow to her career and the careers of many American artists at that time. I mean, that was the McCarthy era. So there were there were many performers who were being blacklisted at the time by the American government. Um, what we find out later is that all of these years, she's being watched, particularly after she married Adam Powell. They were both watched. Whenever they went overseas, they found out that their hotel rooms were being bugged by the American government. So they were being watched. This was a time when everybody was under suspicion, particularly performers, and they were considered subversives. And Ozzie Davis had a a great quote uh, where he said at that particular time, if you were a black performer, you didn't know if you were being targeted because you were black or because you were red. It was called the Red Scare. And Hazel ended up getting swept into all of that madness, because it was madness. And it led to the destruction of many great careers. People lost work, people became unemployable. There were even people who committed suicide during this time. So it was a very scary time in Americans history. And when Hazel found out that her name was listed in There was a publication called Red Channels and another one called Counterattack. And that's where they would list the supposed subversives and people who were suspected as either being communist and members of the American Communist Party or at least communist sympathizers. She was neither. But a lot of the performers that were 
part of cafe society got swept up into this mad period because Barney Josephson's brother, who was avowed communist, I mean, he was a member of the American Communist Party and made no bones about it. He was one of the investors and and helped Barney establish Cafe Society. So they just took the entire club and anybody that performed there and anybody that attended Cafe Society was under suspicion. When Hazel found out that her name was listed, she went to her husband, who was a congressman, and I can presume that she assumed that he could protect her in some way. He told her, these people are out for blood, and you don't need to go before HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee. And she said, the only thing a performer has is their good name. I've got to go and clear my name. So unlike some performers, Hazel wasn't summoned by HUAC. She voluntarily went. She requested a hearing before HUAC. And I think that's an indication also of who she was, how serious she was about her personal and political convictions about justice. And she just refused to listen to her husband. So she goes and appears in September of 1950. Her TV show, The Hazel Scott Show, aired on the Dumont Network in July of 1950. So you're talking a few short months later after getting rave reviews for her show, after the TV show had been extended from 15 minutes, which was typical at that time, but it was extended from 15 minutes to 30 minutes, which was a huge landmark. I mean, this woman was breaking barriers in the entertainment industry left and right. So she goes in September of 1950, appears before HUAC. She prepared a 50-page statement and asked that that be put into the committee's record. And then she asked, can I read from my statement? And they told her right off the bat, the only reason we're allowing you to do this is because you're the wife of a congressman. And she said, well, what about those artists who don't have a husband who's a congressman? What about them? And then she goes into this whole thing where she stands up, not just for herself, but for all American artists who, in her opinion, she said, we go all over the world and we're demonstrating through our performances, through our art, just how great America is. So why are we being sullied by scandal and lies? And then as soon as it was over, her manager calls her and goes, all of these engagements have canceled tours have to be canceled. And then very shortly after that, the TV show was canceled. It's part of the reason why she's lesser known. The way that she phrases it at the end of her life is she says, the idea that my career was stopped nearly killed me. And she, you can infer that she meant HUAC, that it was the American government that conspired to stop her career in its tracks. And she did struggle after that. I mean, she her engagements, they were much less. And she ended up uh, moving to France to try to start a life anew. And she never quite gained the same momentum that, that she had in the States. And, you know, and along this time, you know, her and Adam Powell, her husband, were fighting. They were separated. And she also had bouts of mental health issues that were going on. And as part of your research for this biography, you were able to read Hazel Scott's diaries, What could you infer what was happening to just her mental health during this time? 
And let me just say, while we're on that subject, that I have her family to thank for the access that they gave me into her life. We've worked together all these years. We're still very close. So it was Adam Powell III, her son, who welcomed me, who gave me access to all of his mother's paraphernalia, including her personal journals. And in this personal journal, it was the beginnings of what was one of her last wishes, and that was to write her memoir. So a lot of her voice is in the book. I wanted to make sure that people didn't just hear my interpretation of what was going on, but they would hear it in her own words. So at this time, you know, as an expatriate in Paris, she had become very depressed, and she had had bouts of depression before. One of the earlier bouts with uh, depression was when her mother, her beloved mother, Alma, passed away when Hazel was pregnant with her son. Her mother died in her 40s, and her mother was her stalwart. She was her enforcer. She was her foundation, You know, when you think it was Alma and Hazel against the world all of her life from the time she was four years old and came from Trinidad over to to Harlem, it was always her and her mother. So when her mother died unexpectedly, she had pneumonia and died like within days of, of a diagnosis, Hazel was bereft and she went into a deep depression. The baby, of course, that was a happy time. And that was, you know, the pregnancy was able to sort of bring her back to her normal, joyous and vivacious self. But from time to time, she talked in her diary about just the overwhelming responsibility that she felt for her career and and being such a young artist and having to provide for her family as a teenager in high school. And she said there were moments when she just didn't think she could go on. So you have to imagine a young girl, 14, 15 years old, you're doing really, really well in your high school classes, but then at night you go to nightclubs and you perform on 52nd Street so that you can bring me into the house. So she was one of the main earners for her family at a very young age. And over time, this started to have an effect on her mental health. When the marriage started to fall apart, she went through another bout of severe depression. And while in Paris, she attempted suicide. And it was just a miraculous story where they had called her dead on arrival the minute she reached the hospital, and then there was an ER doctor that noticed a faint pulse and said, no, 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 I th- we can bring her back. And so she was resuscitated. And it was after that that she had a new lease on life, and it was Billie Holiday who sort of stood in for where Alma used to stand. Billie Holiday became that maternal figure. Even though they were close in age, Billie was just so much more worldly. Um, than Hazel. Because the other interesting part about her life is you see this international star and you think, oh, this is a worldly, sophisticated, you know, cosmopolitan woman. But you have to realize she actually was very sheltered, which is why someone like Adam Powell could come into the picture and have the power over her that he had. Because like a lot of young prodigies, you're cocooned Even though, you know, you're playing in nightclubs and folks are smoking and drinking and you're in this very hip and cosmopolitan environment, you yourself 
are still very cocooned. You know, her mother would take her to her gigs and pick her up and take her home. And when she couldn't come, Billie Holiday was there. So there was always somebody there to sort of watch out for her because she was so young. So by the time she gets to Paris, she's in her 30s. And this is really the first time in her life that she's truly on her own because she went from being under her mother's care to being married at a young age and being with a husband that was very domineering and and controlling. So by the time she gets to Paris, she's early 30s with a young son. She's a single parent and she's got to make a go of it. And she does. And I think even though the career took a big hit and she didn't work as much and she wasn't as well-known and she played smaller clubs, she didn't play the big music halls that she had been playing earlier in her career, I think eventually Paris became a place of peace for her. It was where she was able to put it all in perspective and really think about what is it that I want and where do I go from here? And not just personally, but even musically, because it was during this time that her music style changed. And, and where can we hear that? Like, is there a song that we can hear kind of a sonic shift that you can point to? The best recording to listen to, to see that marked change, is her seminal recording called Relaxed Piano Moods that she performed with a very young Max Roach, the legendary drummer, and a very young Charles Mingus, the very young uh, bassist at the time. And they came to her because they had been fans of hers as young lions on the jazz scene. And it was, you know, kismet because she said, this is great because I no longer want to swing the classics. I don't want to do this anymore. It's kitschy. It was fun when I was young, but I've matured. I've lived so much life now. I, I want to do more serious music. I want to go into a deeper place musically. And so she wrote a couple of the compositions on that recording, and uh, the three of them together are just fire. I mean, it is one gorgeous recording. also do an album where she also sings in French as well? Was that happening during your time in Paris? Yeah, that was happening during her time. She she performed under Polydor Records. Gorgeous recordings. Because she was one of those rare Americans that, I mean, she really mastered the French language. <laughs> and I mean, I'm saying that I, maybe I should speak for myself. I mean, French is difficult, but she spoke it beautifully. But this is a girl that loved language. She spoke five different languages. And when she was a young girl, she said she used to go and buy newspapers in Russian and Yiddish and Spanish and French and Italian because she this, this is a woman that had a thirst for knowledge. So when she got to Paris, her French was great. And she even appeared in a couple of French movies. And so she started singing in French, and it is just gorgeous. I actually bought the the little 45 and had to buy a record player just so I could hear it because it's, it's just that gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. 
She ended up having some tax issues along the way, in part by um, some tax burdens that had come on due to her marriage to Adam Powell. She she kind of started to run out of money in Paris, but she eventually moved back to the States, and she found joy in watching her grandchildren. And then in 1981, at the age of 61, she got her dream job playing at a nightclub again in, in a situation where she could determine her own schedule, which was kind of unheard of, but she had so much flexibility. The pay was great. But then a few months later, she died of pancreatic cancer. And so through all of this, I'm curious what you make of her final years as a performer. You know, it's interesting. When I first started researching Hazel, which is now almost 20 years ago. Wow. um, And there was no book about her. There was very little written about her. I found small excerpts in a couple of books, but not much. And then I started piecing together. I spent about seven years researching her. And I tell this story because I think it's important to make this statement about black women's lives. When I started researching her and I started pitching this idea to publishers, when I said black woman in jazz, the first thing everyone asked me, how did she die? How did she die? So I'm in here talking about a woman who was a child prodigy, you know, studied at the Juilliard School at eight years old when the entrance age was 16, had her own radio show on WOR at 14, was on Broadway at 18 and was a star by 19 and was the first black woman to have her own TV show, The Hazel Scott Show, in 1950, which was a couple of years before even Nat King Cole's TV show, which was one of the more long-lasting uh, television shows hosted by a black artist. So I'm telling you all of this information about this really exciting woman who is a child prodigy. And the first thing I'm asked, how did she die? And it kept happening. And I kept saying, what is this fixation? Or what is this this idea that they have about black women performers in jazz? And then I realized that what they were sort of latching on to was this pathology of trauma and tragedy. Mm. And that's what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear, you know, did she die with a needle in her arm? Did she jump off of a building? Did she take a bunch of pills? Like what happened? Was she shot? You know, and it was, I found it offensive, but I also found it instructive in how I would pursue telling this woman's story. And so I have spent the last 20 years elevating her life and her music in as many ways as I can because I think it's worthy to be said that this was a happy black woman. She had her height. She had her peak. She had her moment in the sun where she made tons of money. And her and Adam had a house in the Hamptons and yachts and traveled all over the world. So she wasn't without those experiences. You know, she she was known to go into a, a Broadway opening wearing a black mink and come out wearing a white one. <laughs> How she did that, I don't know. But I'm saying she led a full life. And so by the time she gets back to New York... She's happy about the gig um, at Kippy's. She's happy, though, to be close to her son. Her and her son have been very, very close all of their lives. And now he's married and has two sons. So Hazel was literally a happy mother and grandmother. And she was their babysitter. 
So when they would come home from school, they had their grandmother to to sit and watch movies with and to to laugh and talk. And I mean, this was the experience. And they talked about how she would play at the Waldorf Astoria and she would bring the two of them up there to sit on her knees while she played. So this was not a woman that died tragically. She died suddenly. Um, She was performing and felt an ache in her back, an excruciating pain in her back went and got it checked up and found out that she was in fourth-stage pancreatic cancer, and she died just a couple of months after that. But I would go as far as to say, and this is probably presumptuous on my part, but this is a woman that was, her general makeup was of a happy, enthusiastic person. She had all of these aspirations. She said, oh, I want to write poetry, and I think I might want to write an opera, and you know, she had all of the, and she wanted to write her memoir. So she was always the artist on fire. She was always thinking about, what else can I do to use this talent that I have? And one of her great quotes is, you're not responsible for your gift, only for what you do with it. And I think she felt supremely blessed to have all of the talents that she had. And, you know, she says in in one of her last interviews, they say, what is the, the one thing that you're most proud of as a performer? And she said, the idea that I could move an audience to their feet. Mm, yeah, <laughs> that, that quote stuck out to me. I mean, she had such a remarkable career. And again, I'm so surprised to have not learned about her until very recently. Why do you think she, she isn't a big household name? I mean, is it because she doesn't have like one hit that everyone's heard over and over and over again? It's really the million-dollar question, and it's the question that I've been asked, you know, ever since the book came out 10 years ago. And the only thing that I can do is just surmise that it was a combination of things. The blacklisting uh, by the House Un-American Activities Committee certainly didn't help. When she went overseas um, and became an expatriate, over here in the state, she was forgotten about. Mm. And then by the time, and you know, music is one of those things that, you know, you really are only as great as your last performance. So you've got to always be creating content to sort of stay ahead of that eight ball, you know, so that you're always in the press or you're always being reviewed or there's a concert where somebody can find you. By the time she went over to Paris, she didn't have a manager anymore. She didn't have a record label, which musicians need. You need that support system. You need the agents, the manager, the publicist, the record label, so that at least, at the very least, your fans are constantly hearing from you. She just did not have that infrastructure around her career while she was in Paris. And then by the time she came back, music had changed. I mean, Hazel Scott is a person that came up in the jazz age. This was the era of big bands. I mean, music had changed so much. Even by the time uh, Max Roach and Charles Mingus approached her, you know, jazz was all about bebop. And then by the 70s, it became the free jazz era. So the music was always changing. Then in the 60s, when she came back, all the rave was soul music. It was the Motown sound. It was, you know, the British invasion. Popular music had changed. And when you think of when she was at the height of her career, she was considered a pop artist because that was the popular music of the day. So, you know, the consequence of her being lesser known There were a lot of things that conspired against her to make that happen. And I just think that a lot of it was just 
the period in which she came up because there are a lot of performers of that era that are just no longer household names. Well, I've been speaking with Karen Chilton, who wrote the biography on Hazel Scott. It's titled Hazel Scott, The Pioneering Journey of a Jazz Pianist from Cafe Society to Hollywood to the House and American Activities Committee. Thank you so much for preserving Hazel's story and sharing it with us today. Thank you, Emily. It's my pleasure. That was Sound and Vision. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and consider giving a one-time $20 donation to help support this show at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.